The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Hello again, and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 tells us in Scripture. My name is Andrew Hamilton, and today I'd like to talk a little bit about the reliability of the Bible. Now, so far we've talked about the structure of scripture and then we went into the four A's of canonization, how we got scripture. Now thereafter there are a number of other elements that we could discuss like the transmission of scripture and the translation of scripture into English which in and of themselves are are excellent points which explain that not only is scripture God-breathed as scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, but, but more than that, the transmission and the translation of Scripture show how God has been ever-present in preserving His Word so that you and I know when we pick up the Bible, we know what we have is the God-given Word of Revelation about Himself. Now, because we adhere to Sola Scriptura here on the Truth for Saints podcast, we recognize the Bible as God's final authority and ultimate authority for the Church and for us as individual Christians. So today, I'd like to talk a little bit about the reliability of Scripture, but then I'd also like to pass on an acrostic called CHAMP, C-H-A-M-P, that just helps us to remember five of the key points that lend support or lend credence to the idea that God's Word is final, infallible, and forever. Now, we've talked about the many authors of Scripture, the centuries over which it's been written, the manuscripts and the transmissions and translations which I've just mentioned, all of which provide us with uh, this this idea that with so many moving parts uh, to the delivery and maintenance of God's Word that uh, sometimes we, we might think to ourselves, well, how is it that errors haven't maybe crept in and changed things a bit, that sort of thing. And in other words, how do we know that what we have is is God's word today. So this is a logical and a valuable question to ask, and really it would be good if perhaps a few more Christians cared enough to ask this and then looked into the answer for themselves. Well, I'll begin with this. The Bible is a self-authenticating work which Christians recognize and receive as the ultimate authority on all matters of spiritual and physical life. Ultimately, we don't rely on the vast number of, of, of manuscripts, of the quality of translations, or the internal and external consistency, etc., to consider the Word of God as authoritative in our lives. As I've pointed out, the Christian recognizes that there is an all-powerful, perfect God who has given His Word and instilled within it a corresponding authority and perfection that is known and recognized by both believer and unbeliever alike. The difference isn't that the believer knows this and the unbeliever doesn't. Rather, it is that one knows and responds appropriately with faith, whereas the unbeliever knows but attempts to suppress this knowledge and in turn hide from God, which therefore would be a, a response that is uh, inappropriate in that it is faithless. As I've pointed out on this podcast a number of times, the scriptures tell us that it is impossible to please God without faith. We offer reason sometimes with our atheist colleagues, friends, and family as to the cosmological or the 
teleological or the ontological or moral arguments for the existence of God, which I don't want to cast aspersion on the on that idea. Those arguments do indeed uh, help to illustrate the truth of theism. However, these arguments will inevitably fall short of clearly proving the very thing that is inherent in all people. And that is the very fact that a living being is the origin of all living beings. Laws exist, therefore a lawgiver must also exist. And obviously, we are each of such unique design Therefore, there must be a designer. God exists, and to attempt to deny the internal and external uh, self-evidence is foolish, or as the Bible says, it's mindless. In other words, arguments for the existence of God are excellent support tools to illustrate these immutable truths, but they don't necessarily prove what God has made self-evident, what he's put in each and every one of us. This principle for God's existence also holds true for the Bible and that its ultimate authority as God's word can be supported by a number of facts which help to demonstrate, as author Josh McDowell points out, the uniqueness and trustworthiness of the Bible, but they don't necessarily prove the Bible to be true simply because the truth of God's word rests on the authenticity and authority inherent within it, given by the ultimate authority who inspired or breathed it into existence in the first place. Like the arguments for the existence of God, the supporting facts for the authority and truth claims of scripture provide what I like to call the fingerprints of God's authorship. To aid in both summarizing and memory, I, as I mentioned, have compiled many of these supporting facts in the form of a mnemonic acrostic, CHAMP, C-H-A-M-P, and it'll convey the strengths of the Bible point by point, supporting that it is what it claims to be, the very word of God and final and, and ultimate authority on truth and error for you and me. So without further ado, I'll get right into it. Why don't we talk about the very first point of the acrostic C for consistency. The Bible is consistent both internally with itself and externally with the observable and experienced world around us. Unfortunately, many supposed scientists or those in a position to testify to this point tend to suppress the truth due to their worldview bias. So let's examine the areas of external consistency in more detail in this section. And with regards to reliability itself, this point of consistency alone elevates the Bible to a place of incomparable superiority to other religious writings like the Bhagavad Gita of the, of the Hindus or uh, Muhammad's Quran. So there's a couple of points to, to make. Let's, let's look first at the internal consistency. Internally, although it was written by over 40 authors in three languages on three continents over the course of 1,500 years, the Bible is consistent internally with itself and contains no contradictions, but reads harmoniously as one book, which is phenomenal. Because of this internal consistency, a reader can confidently approach the scriptures for a consistent answer to questions that pertain to all matters of life and faith. We'll discuss this in greater detail when we address how to read the Bible, maybe a little bit later on a podcast. The second point is the, its external consistency. The second point of the C in our uh, acrostic is its external consistency. The Bible is consistent externally with science, physics, geology, anthropology, medical science, etc. Bible-believing Christians do not claim that the Bible is a science book, however. The claims made in Scripture sometimes predate findings of modern science by thousands of years. Uh, well, first of all, physics. 
Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 22, uh, claims that the Lord sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, this is one of those points that atheists like to claim that uh, Christians all believe in a flat earth. Yet we see in Isaiah, that which was written probably a thousand years before uh, men came to the realization that the earth itself was round, here we have the prophet Isaiah declaring that it's a circle, that the circle, that the earth is a circle. Now we also on that same point in Job chapter twenty-six verse seven, uh, the Lord hangs the earth on nothing; it floats. Uh, suspended on nothing. Again, these are things that wouldn't be discovered for centuries and centuries later. Uh, with regards to geography, the book of Genesis claims that there's a 6,000-year-old earth, and that's supported by a number of geological observations, one of, it, one, of, one of which happens to be the Memphis Delta. The claim is that the Memphis Delta had formed over the deposition of uh, millions and millions of years, when in reality, that would be absolutely po- impossible because the observable deposition would suggest the amount of deposition that is there now could have only been there for uh, several thousand years, which would which would be consistent with scripture, meaning that all the world was covered with water at one point and that it receded. And then that's, what, of course, when we would begin to see the deposition take place. Let's have a look at anthropology now. The book of Genesis claims that all humanity basically started from two people, and that's supported by the discovery of a mitochondrial Eve, which says from whom all mitochondrial DNA is said to emerge. Well, this was written thousands of years before that uh, scientific observation took place. Medical science, Psalm chapter 37, verse 8, claims long before recent studies that fretting uh, or worrying only causes physical harm. This is now widely accepted by the medical community that uh, that worrying this, the idea that we, we sit around and sort of wring our wrists over things that haven't happened or w- won't happen has basically been renamed and we now call it stress. And anytime you want to talk about uh, many of the unexplained phenomena that physical issues and physical problems oftentimes are uh, attributed to stress, which, of course, is nothing more than fretting and worrying. So we see a consistency that takes place with Scripture internally and externally. We don't see contradictions. The Bible oftentimes is accused of having contradictions, when in reality, if you take a look at what a contradiction is, it's a failure to recognize the definition, whereby oftentimes a deeper look at a particular passage, say, for instance, the example most often given is that, uh, that Scripture contradicts itself when it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, and then it says thou shalt not kill. Well, if you look at the the passages, you would see that, first of all, an eye for an eye was given as a way and fulfilled in Jesus when he said that we are to abide by the the golden rule we do unto others as we would have them do to ourselves. And then we look at the other passage, which supposedly is the contradictory passage, that nowhere does it the Lord say thou shalt not kill. In fact, he gives the command for us to kill. In the law, the, the, the Jewish people people were, were commanded to offer sacrifices. And so there never was a command that says thou shalt not kill, but rather the passage is thou shalt not commit murder. And that's the difference. A public execution or a, an execution in general or capital punishment is not murder. It's in fact, oftentimes that is the method by which many criminals will avoid murdering other people is to know that they themselves will, will be put to death in a form of capital punishment. So the scripture doesn't say thou shalt Thou shalt not kill, it says, thou shalt not commit murder. So we don't see an issue with consistency internally 
throughout all of Scripture. In fact, just about any, there are volumes and volumes and volumes of writings that would help us to, as Christians to walk through the Scriptures and take a look at these supposed accusations of inconsistencies, these accusations of contradictions. And on closer examination, we find that there are no contradictions, that it is fully and completely consistent internally with itself. So when we see internal and external consistency, we can see that that, that this book in and of itself possesses an attribute that the other religious writings do not offer. Let's move along to the second point of our acrostic, and that is H for historical accuracy or historicity. And I would add even uh, to that is survivability. Uh, The civilizations, the locations, military excursions, monetary units all found in the Bible are confirmed by archaeology time and time again. Uh, They they are confirmed to have actually existed, just as the Bible said, and they thus rendered the Bible as an historically accurate report of events that have taken place. In fact, there are several archaeologists who, in an effort to try to find a civilization, a lost civilization, have looked looked to the Bible to see where a particular civilization may have existed based on the reports that are given in Scripture. And that's quite phenomenal. The other point that I I kind of wanted to slip in there was historical survivability. This is what I think is just remarkable about Scripture, because no other religious work has undergone such tremendous uh, persecution, so many different efforts at wiping it off the face of the earth as the Scriptures have. Despite 3,000 years with a history of this, this type of suppression and corruption and outright attempts at obliteration, especially at the hands of Near Eastern empires, the Roman Empire, heretical groups, the Roman Catholic Church, and atheist governments and critics, the Bible has remarkably survived and remains the number one best-selling book in human history. You can't take this claim and apply it to any other single book in human history. That's quite remarkable. The third point of our acrostic is A for archaeological support. For this section, I defer to the work of both Josh McDowell and his book, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and then Norman Geisler's A General Introduction to the Bible. Now, as I mentioned, archaeology confirms the accuracy of the historical claims of the Bible, but there's a myriad of archaeological discoveries that fully support the biblical narratives, as well as help to to lend credence to the truth of the events that are described therein. But let's let's just take this moment to, to simply keep things in perspective. These are things that Uh, They lend support and can help provide answers when discussing the authority of the Bible with our friends and loved ones who perhaps have been taught an inaccurate view of Scripture from someone that has perhaps an opposing worldview. But by no means are they required in order to uh, support the claim that the Bible is the authoritative Word of God and that it requires no support. The Bible, as I've mentioned, is in and of itself, fully and completely authoritative. However, these things are supporting with regards to our conversations about the Bible and will help us to see that it is truly a unique book and truly a trustworthy book. For brevity's sake, I've chosen to cite just a few of the more widely known instances in order to sort of illustrate this point. So uh, let's take a look at Josh McDowell's work. So according to Josh McDowell, there are nearly 25,000 different sites associated with the Old Testament period alone. And all of which have been located, they've been excavated, and lands mentioned in the Bible. These ancient sites became ruined 
ruins, and those ruins then became areas of geological deposition, and over time, foliage and grass covered the areas, and today they appear as mounds of earth known as tells. So these tells then act as a sort of treasure trove of information for archaeologists and Bible scholars alike. As I said, oftentimes these tells are, are nice markers on top of the earth that let archaeologists know how to then incorporate the, the narratives in the Bible and then sort of triangulate where to, to begin their digs. And time and time again, they've come back with just amazing findings. King's names were found engraved in discovered uh, hinge sockets and sepulchers, which allowed archaeologists to set time periods in many cases. You know, the flood, lists of kings from Sumerian scribes around 200 BC, cataloging kings and their successive dynasties, their times and tenor, show that an inscribed stone foundation was laid by an unknown king a few miles from Ur. Now, Ur, as you recall, is that land from which Abram hailed, Ur of the Chaldees as it reports in Genesis. Now, this list categorizes his dynasty as the third after the flood, 3,100 years BC and 1,000 years before Abraham. If the flood were an imaginary event, as some suppose, why would an ancient king make reference to a line of kings from the flood at the risk of being laughed to tears? Obviously, if it didn't happen, why on earth would royal catalogs reference such a thing? Well, the fact is, it did indeed exist, and we have plenty of evidence that shows, geological evidence and otherwise, that shows that indeed there was a worldwide catastrophic flood. So back to Abram. Abram hailed from Ur of the Chaldees. Critics claim that Ur didn't even exist, as no one had yet even found that location at the time of the critics. Furthermore, the claim was made that Abram's culture was unrealistic for someone from this area. That is, of course, until uh, about 1933, when a palace of Mari was found in 20,000 cuneiform tablets dated at around 2500 BC, which was about the same time as Abraham was running around. Then a few miles away in the city of uh, Nuzi, more tablets were found describing daily life and practices in exactly the same manner as those described of Abraham's in the Old Testament. And that consistency is remarkable. The Pentateuch, Critics claim that uh, these first five books of the Bible could not have been written by Moses because the priestly legislation was far too complex, they say, for the time, and that the writing itself would not have been available to Moses at that time. And this is known as higher criticism. This is a criticism that comes from people who have a contrary worldview to the fact that Scripture is the authoritative Word of God and that God himself even exists. So these higher critics then attempt to tear down the Scriptures because that's the authority that by which you and I, and dare I say, they as well, are all held accountable. But of course, this criticism would only last until about 1964 to 1974, a 10-year period, when the 17,000 Ebla tablets were found in northern Syria. These tablets were dated to have been written circa 2250 BC, roughly 200 years before Moses. That means that laws, customs, events, all were recorded on the, these Ebla tablets, which verified indeed that the ability to write existed and to have complex legislation exactly as the Pentateuch describes was a reality a couple of centuries before Moses began to write. 
The Ebla tablets also confirm the existence of the Shedlatimer and Mesopotamian kings and their five cities in the exact order written in Genesis chapter 14. As I've mentioned, higher criticism has attacked the validity of authorship and truthfulness of the Old Testament, but has again and again been disproved by archaeological findings. The same holds true for the New Testament as well. Let's take a look at a few of the bullet points of archaeological support for New Testament authorship and truthfulness, which were brought to light by the census of Quirinius mentioned in Luke chapter 2, verse 2. New Testament critics of Luke say that he was in error and that not only was a census not taken, they say, but Quirinius was not governor at that time. And no one would have been required to return to their homeland, they say. This held uh, water with some people until archaeological discoveries revealed the existence of a Roman census that took place every 14 years and began under Augustus in 23 B.C. or 9 B.C. Also, they found a plaque in northern Syria with the inscription of Quirinius receiving his post. That's an additional term, as first century Jewish historian Josephus would report. A papyrus was found from this time period, which instructed people to return to their governments and to the tilled land to which they belonged. So you can see from that that quite clearly there is evidence from ancient historians and archaeology which said that indeed that did happen, exactly as scripture said. Uh, these are just a few of the, of the points that I'd like to mention. Another one is coins were found to show the existence of Felix at the time of the Apostle Paul and that the Pool of Siloam and the Pool of Bethesda actually existed. I find it quite remarkable that archaeologically we see such consistency, we see the report and the narrative that's given in Scripture is borne out not only in science, but also by historians who were not themselves Christians. And that, of course, brings us to our fourth point of the acrostic, uh, which is M for manuscript support. I go into great detail on the manuscript process in my chapter in an upcoming book about Christianity. But one of the points that I'd like to make here is that the first is that what we have for Scripture are 24,000 plus manuscripts and manuscript fragments uh, in existence for the New Testament alone, some of which date all the way back to contemporaries of eyewitness authors. One of them we have in England in Manchester, and you can actually observe the, the fragment of John. It is known as the Ryland Fragment, dated roughly around 150, anywhere from 110 to 150 AD, which means that it, it dates all the way back to contemporaries of the apostles, or at least to contemporaries of eyewitness authors. There is no reason to doubt that what we have in our hands today is what was given by God to his people 2,000 years ago, and that's the truth of it all. The fifth point of our acrostic that to, to help aid us in our discussion for the reliability of Scripture is P for prophecy. Now, this is a principle that has largely come under attack by liberal scholars and by the machinations of uh, higher criticism, largely because it probably would come from uh, Hume's idea that the supernatural cannot exist. Can't be proven that it does not exist, just the claim is made that it cannot exist. It cannot exist because the only thing that does exist is that which is the natural. However, anything of the supernatural means above or outside the natural, but it, it, supernatural more than anything else simply means above the natural. And so it's begging the question to simply claim that it cannot exist and then ignore every 
instance in which we observe the supernatural. So prophecy is in that category of the supernatural. And so higher critics would find a bit of bias against the supernatural from a preconceived worldview. So the purveyors of higher criticism assert that passages of Daniel and Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets were written by different authors other than those to whom they have been credited for centuries, and that these mysterious anonymous ghost writers that they claim uh, wrote these predictive passages long after the events took place. Now, there's no evidence for that. They didn't observe this. There's no natural empirical evidence for that. It's just simply the claims of people who say, well, that's probably what happened. And that's what explains why these prophecies were given hundreds, even thousands of years before the events took place. And yet they were fulfilled to a T. So there's a bit of an inconsistency there in that the claim that the miraculous cannot exist because we cannot observe it, but then to disallow reports of the miraculous by people who are writing thousands of years later who did not observe it themselves. So without muddying the waters, I hope that that, uh, you would see that there's an inconsistency there uh, with regards to this point of prophecy. So The problem with these assertions is that they're founded solely on speculation without providing even a remote shard of evidence. Who were these mysterious ghostwriters? Who were these authors? How did they get people to remain followers of Judaism during the time of literary falsification? I mean, how how is it that that people remain true to Judaism when they knew that there are people running around and ghostwriting and coming up with post-predictive prophecies that were they just went and reported what had happened but made it look like it was a prophecy? You would have lost just about everybody from Judaism at that point, but you didn't. People knew that and they saw that. And in fact, read many of these prophecies and saw that they were the, the people saw that they were in the midst of some of them, and it resulted in a revival of devotion to the Lord. It's quite obvious that the Jewish people recognized that God Almighty had spoken in the past of events future and that these Jewish followers were living or suffering as a result of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Uh, It did bring about repentance and change during the time of Nehemiah. It also brought hope uh, for the intervention of God by way of a Messiah or Savior of mankind from mankind's inherent sinfulness. Well, let's look at a few cited prophecies of the Old and New Testaments mentioned by uh, McDowell in his book. One of the most astounding prophecies of the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel chapter 26, verses 3 through 21. It entails the prediction of the destruction of the megacity of Tyre. It's kind of like a New York of its day. Although the prophecy contains several points throughout verses 3 through 21, the prophecy was fulfilled incrementally over time. It didn't all happen overnight, but eventually over the course of time, each and every point, each and every one of these points has been fulfilled, one of which is in the process of being fulfilled even as we speak. McDowell has broken down the fulfillment in chronological order, citing the corresponding scripture reference sort of out of order so you could see where the point in scripture corresponds with the point in history. Ezekiel communicates the following judgments of God on Tyre around 571 BC. In verse 7, he writes, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, From the north I am going to bring against Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots and horsemen and a great army. Well, 
Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon during this time and was conquering all nations in the Near East. So this reasonable and likely prophecy was fulfilled roughly three years later. Wouldn't have been a real stretch, to be fair, because Nebuchadnezzar was doing that to everyone anyways, and it was only a matter of time before he'd come against Tyre. It was a very important port city there in the Near East. So in verse 8, Ezekiel writes, He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, and raise his shields against you. Now, it's one thing to to say that Nebuchadnezzar was going to come against the city. That was fairly obvious. But then to describe well in advance, three years in advance, exactly how he was going to do it when that's not how Nebuchadnezzar was coming against other cities at the time, but that this had a bit of specificity to it that really should make the reader stand up and take note. And the reader in those days should have stood up and took note. So Nebuchadnezzar, of course, fulfilled this over the course of a 13-year siege, uh, which resulted in Tyre submitting to Babylon's suzerainty. Then shortly after that, Tyre would rebel. Now, some of these things Ezekiel couldn't have seen or known, and that it's a lot less likely that such a thing would happen, but it did happen. Tyre did rebel, and the siege would resume anew. Then, when King Nebuchadnezzar finally broke the gates of Tyre down, he found a completely deserted city. The citizens of Tyre had escaped by ship to an island off the coast. So Nebuchadnezzar couldn't really do anything to stop or pursue them as uh, the landlocked Babylon didn't really have a navy. And, you know, only the larger city-states and the larger civilizations even had a navy. And, and Tyre did indeed have one, a very small one, but it was enough to get its citizens out of the city and onto an island just off the coast. So Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Babylonians had such rage at this escape that uh, Nebuchadnezzar then destroyed the vacated mainland city. Now, you see, this is an important point because three years earlier, why on earth would Babylon come against it and then completely raise the city, just devour it and and destroy it and and, uh, leave a heap of ashes and stones? Why would it do that? Well, three years later, it all comes to light why this, this happened and why it was described in detail. So the people of Tyre settled on this island off the coast of Tyre, where they remained a powerful fortified city for 200 years. 200 years they remained out there on that island just off the coast. The second half of verse 12, Ezekiel writes, They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. Now, that wasn't done. It hadn't been done. There's no reason to do that. It's a waste of labor, a waste of time. Why on earth would you throw all the rubble into the sea. There's no reason for that. There's no reason to throw stones into the sea. But that is indeed what happened. Very, there's a lot of specificity here, and really some of it is so odd that no army would waste time just throwing rubble of a deserted city into the sea, unless, as we read, strangely enough, it was fulfilled by Alexander the Great many years later. Alexander, like Nebuchadnezzar, did not have a fighting navy to access the inhabitants or the escapees, if you will. By now, of course, they are the, the descendants of the escapees. 
on that island off the coast of the old Tyre. Uh, so what he did is he collected the rubble and the debris left behind by the Babylonian destruction of the mainland Tyre, and he threw it into the sea to build a causeway out to the island city of Tyre. Now, this is 200 years later. He built a, a causeway out to the island city of Tyre. So all of the rubble, all of the stones were, just as the Lord said in Ezekiel, ripped from the, this destroyed city of Tyre, turned into a causeway to reach the island city of Tyre. Now, let's look at verse 14. Ezekiel writes, I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, again, this is an odd prediction by the Old Testament prophet as most destroyed cities simply remain mounds of debris, dust and ashes. And we, we can see that with all the ones we've found. However, this prophecy attire remaining flat as a rock was indeed fulfilled yet again at the same time and by the same person as verse 12, Alexander the Great of the Grecian Empire. Now, Alexander the Great's causeway construction would reach the island city of Tyre, but it left the original mainland city site scraped bare and flat because they used everything to get out to that city. Now, you can go to this old site of Tyre and you can see with your own eyes how bare and flat it is to this very day. Now, back to verses 3 and 4. A bit out of order that the prophecy was given, but in keeping with uh, chronology, McDowell points this out in verses 3 and 4, that Ezekiel writes that this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you. Like the sea casting up its waves, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Now, this prophecy from 571 B.C. was indeed fulfilled in 332 B.C. by Alexander the Great, who we've been talking about. He had recently failed to build a causeway due to the attacks on his workers. What had happened is as they were building, they were being shot at with arrows and had spears thrown at them. And it was basically the, the city of, of Tyre was fighting against this army that was trying or laborers of the army, if you will, that were trying to build this causeway. So it was a very delayed, slow labor. He didn't have a, a navy where he could get get to them. So he had to continue with this thing. So what he had to do because he didn't have a Navy, he formed a coalition Navy from other surrounding port cities. Why Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this? I don't know, but he didn't. But Alexander finally figured out, well, if I can't do it, maybe I can hire a few people that can do it for me. So he formed this coalition Navy from Sidon and Rhodes and Lycia and, and took this sort of mercenary Navy to sail against the island city of Tyre. So now in verse 14, you will never again be rebuilt. This is the one that I told you that is being fulfilled in our day and in our midst. It's been all this time later. And uh, although this wasn't fulfilled right away, as the city did continue to be built and rebuilt long after Alexander and was later occupied by the Eastern Roman Empire, it, it still was a very highly unlikely prophecy because this location was a very strategic location for a port city, as I mentioned. And it has millions of gallons of fresh water as a daily resource on the site. It's an ideal site for a city, an ideal site for anyone to build, but it has not been built. Uh, however, this 571 BC prophecy was ultimately fulfilled in 1291 AD by Muslim invaders who utterly destroyed Tyre in 1291, 660 years later, 
utterly destroyed Tyre forever. Tyre has from that day until today remained desolate, unbuilt, and uninhabited, even though 10 million gallons of fresh water pour from this port location into the sea every single day. Miraculously, the word of God remains fulfilled regarding the perpetual desolation of Tyre. It's remarkable. And I will say one, one other thing. If you go there and visit the site, you not only see this bare site. In verse 5, Ezekiel writes, Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, spreading fishnets in the middle of uh, New York is not necessarily a recommended practice because there isn't a whole lot of open land there to do this on, and nor would there have been entire. However, it was ultimately fulfilled after the city's final and ultimate destruction in 1291. It remains fulfilled today as modern-day fishermen right there on that spot frequent the area to spread their nets to dry. It serves as an ideal location for that practice. This Old Testament example of fulfilled prophecy is just one of many. There is a myriad of, of fulfilled prophecies, but the unlikelihood of its fulfillment most likely brought scorn and derision on Ezekiel at the time. Could you imagine saying things like that about New York today? I just can't imagine the scorn that we would receive if we said such a thing. But yet that is what Ezekiel said about Tyre, and that is exactly what happened. It just took about 1,600 and plus years uh, to, to come to pass. All the predictions the Lord gave through Ezekiel came to pass even to today. Some of the more important Old Testament prophecies pertain to the coming Savior of mankind, Jesus Christ. It's said that there are nearly 330 prophecies for the coming Messiah alone, 61 of which are considered major prophecies. Let's look at just a few of the many major prophecies uh, that were fulfilled by Jesus and where this fulfillment can be found in the New Testament. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, thou, though be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And that's an interesting point to, 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 to note there. This prophecy not only proclaims that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, a little town in, Judah, in Judea, but that this Messiah would be God incarnate, whose goings forth of ever are everlasting. There are no created beings whose going forth is said to be everlasting. That is a statement of deity. And this prophecy itself was fulfilled as reported in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Luke writes, And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. That is a perfect description of the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. The second one is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah writes, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This passage in Isaiah is in a messianic context. And it declares the Messiah will be preceded by a messenger imploring repentance or making paths straight. And of course, this was fulfilled by John the Baptist as reported in Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this was he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. A third point, Zechariah 
chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. This prophecy proclaimed that the king of Zion that brings salvation would enter Jerusalem by donkey. Now, that's a strange and odd thing for any king to do, for any victorious king to do. Either today or throughout history, kings just simply have a tendency to want glory and uh, to want fanfare. But that is not what Jesus did when he entered Jerusalem. The fulfillment of this prophecy is reported in Luke chapter 19, verses 33 to 38, where Luke writes, And as they were loosing the colt, the owners turned thereof, said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they sat Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalm 41, verse 9, the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend. This fulfillment is reported in Matthew chapter 26 and Zechariah chapter 11. The Messiah would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, fulfilled in Matthew 26 verse 15. Isaiah chapter 53, the Messiah would be dumb or silent before his accusers, which was fulfilled and recorded in Matthew chapter 27. Psalm 22, the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. Psalm 22 is a phenomenal psalm written by King David, and it's a messianic psalm, and throughout it describes perfectly in detail Jesus on the cross and many of the details that surrounded uh, his uh, execution at the hands of the Romans. In Psalm 22, verse 16, the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced. This odd prediction, of course, why on earth David's hands and feet were never pierced. So obviously he was talking about somebody else, but it, it came hundreds of years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. Now, the, the Persians invented it and the Romans thought it was a fantastic way to make someone suffer or pay. And so they picked it up with a vengeance. It was actually indeed fulfilled and recorded in Luke chapter 23. And then in Isaiah 53, verse 12, the Messiah would be executed along with or among thieves, which was reported in Matthew 27. You know, there are numerous prophecies besides these that I've mentioned, and they're given throughout the Old and New Testament, some of which have been fulfilled or have yet to be fulfilled, but which further illustrate the last point of our acrostic, uh, the P of our acrostic, C-H-A-M-P, champ. Although these aren't proofs, as I mentioned, for the divinity of scripture, consistency, his, historical or historicity, archaeological, manuscript, and prophetic details of scripture all lend credence to the reliability and authority of the truth claims of the Bible. It's a, it's a book worthy of our trust and worthy of our, at the very least, worthy of our attention. And it is these truth claims that are the most important aspect of the Bible. Many of these prophecies are spelled out in detail in, in Josh McDowell's book, as I mentioned, More Evidence to Demand a Verdict. Should you choose to examine the prophetic claims of Scripture further? It's far more than I've mentioned here, and there's even more than what he mentions in his book. But at the end of it all, the thing that's really worth examining is the foundational point. What does the Bible have to say about matters of faith and life itself? And what the Bible says about you and me is that we are born with a disposition against God, and it's known as sin. 
every single one of us, none of us more than the other, none of us less than the other. We are all in the same boat. We have a thing called sin sickness. It's rebellion towards God. That's the bad news. There's no way that we could have saved ourselves. Many men have tried to work their way to God. They've tried to do good deeds and have failed miserably because good deeds don't save us. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine said, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Now, we all have the sin sickness, and in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. And at death, we all die, whether we're sinners or not sinners, but we're all sinners, but we all die physically. But that death spoken of in, in Romans chapter 6 is a spiritual death. It's a separation from God. Many people think that, well, I'll be okay in hell because all my friends are going to be there. Or all my family's going to be there. And at least I'll, I'll know everybody there. And besides, I don't like going to church and I'm sure heaven will just be like church and I don't want to be in, in heaven anyway. So, and it's just a drastic misunderstanding of what scriptures have to say about separation from God. Separation from God means that all the good things that we have in life, camaraderie, companionship, uh, satisfaction, fulfillment, all of the things that we can even remotely refer to as good are gone. Because all of those things, scripture says, come from God Almighty. And at one point, he simply says, enough is enough and what happens is those who have chosen to remain in their rebellion against him, those who chose to remain in their sin, are simply put into a place where they are separated from him. And that's what that death means. It's basically separation from God. That's hell. It's absolutely miserable, as Jesus describes it. Now, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But in Romans 6.23 Scripture says, for the wages of sin is death. Now, the other part of Romans 6.23 states that, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Now, we only know that we are sinners because Scripture explains to us quite clearly that we are sinners. But we also have an inward testimony that was written on our hearts, the law of God written on our hearts, the Bible says, where we know we are outside of a relationship with him. We know that. We try to come up with false gods and, and cults and false religions in order to make us feel better. But really, the message of the Bible says this. Number one, we're sinners. Number two, the wages of sin is death, as it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And in the book of John chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would have eternal life. Now, herein is the good news. The good news is when we come to Jesus in truth, crying out to him, declaring our sin, confessing our sin, and crying out to him for mercy, the Lord says that it is given to us that whoever should call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, please note, 
It's sincerity of heart. I'm not talking about the, the sort of false conversion that happens when you do the sawdust trail or the, the anxious bench or you make a decision for Christ. There's no decision to be made for Christ. You're saved by him, for him, and not of your works. And, not, and that, that includes your own sort of uh, decisive ability. You're saved out of the goodness of God's heart. He saves you. And you know that you are one of his saved if you are the one that you hear what I'm saying and what others have said, and you make a decision at that moment to go on your knees and cry out to the Lord and say, yes, I'm no better than anybody else. I'm a sinner like everybody else. I ask you to forgive me, have mercy on me and save me. Now, the Lord Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. And later podcasts, we'll talk about what the atonement is. There's a lot of theological terms that describe that more in detail. And we'll talk about that in, in later podcasts. But for right now, suffice it to say that Jesus suffered on the cross for your sake and for my sake. But unless we cry out to him unless we reach out to him in faith and that faith is not of ourselves it's the gift of god and we repent of our sins and receive him as our lord and savior then we remain in our sins but the good news is he's paid for those sins and there's no reason for us to remain in them anymore we simply turn repent and according to scripture we trust in faith by faith we trust that he has done as he said he would do and he has forgiven us and it says that for as many as received him to them he gave the right to be called sons and daughters of god children of god that's what the scripture has to say and that is an eternal life and a relationship that begins today that begins the moment that you genuinely and sincerely turn to him in faith and that faith is not from you it's the holy spirit and if if these words are ringing true to you it's because you're being called and it's a matter of re responding appropriately now, some will hear these words and they'll continue to suppress the truth. They'll bury these words and they will do nothing about it and they'll go on about their life. But the day will come when their life is over and they'll have to come to grips with the fact that they failed when they heard these words. They did not respond to them. This is what the Bible has to say. It's all about you and me and and our sinfulness and Jesus full and complete payment on the cross for our sins and a subsequent resurrection from the dead three days later so that we can also be resurrected with him so that we can have new life in him today. We live a life as his sons and daughters. Uh, no longer being conformed to the ways of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind. We get into a good Bible teaching church. That's an important thing. And we'll talk about churches to avoid, churches to watch out for, because they say Christian on the outside, but they're not Christian on the inside. But we get into a good Bible-believing church. We get, in, we get into the Word of God. We begin to learn how to rightly divide the Word of truth for ourselves and to hear what God has to say in His Word regarding our life. 
That's what the Bible has to say about you, about me, and about life in Jesus. And I hope that you would, would hear these words and respond. If you'd like to know more about the gospel, if you'd like to know more about any of the things you hear on this podcast, Truth For Saints, please feel free to stop by truthforsaints.com. Go to the contacts page and, and write me a quick note. It comes straight to my email and we'll try to respond to you. So with that, we'll go ahead and conclude this message on the reliability of scripture and the champ acrostic. I hope it's been helpful. And as always, please uh, click subscribe and you'll receive push notifications so that uh, the new episodes are up. We will address in upcoming episodes the Christology, that is the study of who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus that saves us? Well, he's none other than God incarnate, both God and, and fully man in one person. For now, thank you for checking out the Truth for Saints podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.